Father God, we praise you for your faithfulness and your love. We thank you that day after day you give us the food that we need for that day. And we come to you again today, Father, asking for the food that we need to love you, to live as your children today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two weeks ago I preached on Acts chapter 4. Uh, where Peter and John get into trouble for preaching about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And I said that uh, two weeks ago, back in Acts 4, that that's the first time that they really get into trouble for their message. It's the first sign of conflict that comes in the book of Acts. Um, And at the end of the chapter, the early Christians get together, end of chapter 4, and they reflect about the experience and they pray about it using the language of Psalm 2 in the Old Testament, which is about the Gentile nations raging and conspiring against God. So those early disciples came to realize that they were witnessing the start of a global political war between Jesus, the rightful king of every nation, and the human kings and rulers of those nations who don't want him to reign. So the disciples are caught up in the middle of that war, right on its front lines. But I said two weeks ago that they're not soldiers in that fight. They're not enlisted to fight. Instead, they're witnesses. We might call them journalists reporting on the action, enlisted to keep speaking the truth. And wartime journalists are extremely dedicated and extremely brave. They carry no weapons and they don't fight. But it would be wrong to say that they have no impact on the outcome of the war. Within any war for territory is a war over truth. And journalists, by disseminating information, influence that war over truth and have been known to change the course of the war. So that's where we find Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, caught up in the middle of a conflict. And that's where we find them again in Acts chapter 5, right back in the heat of the action. So let's rejoin the story in Acts. Uh, by turning to Acts chapter 5. It's on page 912 of the Church Bibles. Acts chapter 5. And we're starting this week at verse 12. So when we read through Acts chapter 5, what we notice is that all the themes of the conflict which we saw back in chapter 4 are back again, but this time they're bigger. Right? So the mission of God has escalated, and the opposition has also escalated. In chapter 4, Peter and John healed one lame man, and then the two of them preached in the temple about the resurrection of Jesus. But here in chapter 5, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of all the apostles. Their group has become well-known, respected, and held in high esteem. So Luke says in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them. And by the rest, he surely means Jews who had not yet accepted Jesus as their Messiah. So what Luke's describing in chapter 5 is a separation between the Jesus Jews and the non-Jesus Jews. The apostles and other followers were holy among their brothers. They were separated. There was a clear distinction. No animosity, but a clearly drawn line. Jews were crossing that line in repentance and putting their faith in Jesus because Luke reports that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. But no one who hadn't turned to Jesus yet dared to join the apostles' group. Perhaps that was for fear of the Sadducees who were opposed to them, or perhaps it was for fear of the apostles themselves, for their holiness and their power. 
And at this point in the story, they were exhibiting truly awesome power. Verse 16 says, People also gathered from the towns all around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And Luke implies that people were being healed just for being touched by Peter's shadow. And if that's what he means, then that's even more amazing than anything that happened at the height of Jesus' own ministry. Jesus had promised them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father, and so because he was going to send them the Holy Spirit. So the mission of God has been kicked up a notch since chapter 4, or several notches. But at the same time, so has the opposition. So in chapter 4, they arrested Peter and John. But here in chapter 5, they arrest all 12 apostles. In chapter 4, they were tried by the high priest and members of his family. But here in chapter 5, verse 21, it's the entire senate of the people of Israel. And in chapter 4, they wanted to silence the message of Jesus. But here in chapter 5, verse 33, they want to execute the messages. So if you watch late night poker, this is the part of the game where they up the ante, right? So poker games are long, and they often start out fairly friendly, gentle, non-committal. But there's always a point where they get serious. All right. The level of investment goes way up, because now there's real money on the table. And here, both the apostles and the priests have upped the ante. In the case of the priests, Luke tells us that they were motivated by jealousy. That's at the end of verse 17. They were filled with jealousy. And that's a powerful word. It's a passionate word. The Greek word that's translated jealousy is also translated in other places as zeal. It's the same word. Um, It can have a positive connotation like vigor or determination or enthusiasm. Or it can have a negative connotation like jealousy. But either way, it's a word that's full of passion. It's action that's motivated by a strong desire. Now, in modern English, we often get confused between the words jealousy and envy. And we actually use the word jealous in both cases. But there's a difference between those words, right? Because jealousy is protectiveness for something that I already have and is being threatened. And envy is a desire for something I don't have, but somebody else does. So my children often come to me and say, I'm jealous because she got an ice cream. Uh, And what I want to say to them is, no, you're envious because she got an ice cream. Uh, You can't be jealous for something that you don't already have. Envy and jealousy are different things, right? Now, they're also different morally. Envy is morally unambiguous. It's always, always wrong. It's never good to envy someone for something they have, like to envy another man's wife or his house or his job or his car. That's evil. Envy leads quickly to covetousness, which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. If you see something that's given to someone else, if they've been given something good, then rejoice with them. And if you want the same thing, ask God for it. Ask your heavenly father. He's good. As a father myself, I can tell you that there's a world of difference between hearing a complaint and a question, right? (laughs) If your children are complaining, it's really hard to give them what they want. So don't complain to God. Don't go crying to him. Ask him. God's word challenges us when it says of Israel, my people cry upon their beds. 
but they do not cry to me. That's from Hosea 7, verse 14. So are we crying on our beds without crying out to our Father? It's easily done. Actually, I think making that transition from complaining to asking is one of the hardest things for the human heart to do. So that's envy. And envy is always wrong. And the solution is to ask God for what we need. But jealousy is different. Jealousy is protectiveness for something that you already have. And it isn't always wrong. It's only wrong if the thing you're protecting doesn't rightfully belong to you. So it's actually right to be jealous for your wife or your husband. Under God, their marital love and attention rightfully belongs exclusively to you and to no one else. And you're right to be jealous for it if someone else tries to take it. And it can be right to be jealous for your children if someone else tries to parent them. Or to be jealous for your property if God gave it to you for a purpose and someone is trying to take it. But the key question is, does this person or thing rightfully belong to me under God? And oftentimes with money or possessions or friendships, the answer is no. It's God's property that we're stewarding. And in that case, it's sinful to be jealous over it when he calls for it. And that's exactly what was going on with those priests and Sadducees. They were jealous because the apostles were taking something away from them. What were they taking? Maybe it was the people themselves, the souls who were being baptized and joining this new movement. Or maybe it was the respect and the good opinion of the Jewish community as a whole. Or maybe it was the religious authority to determine what was good doctrine. Or maybe more basically, it was simply their right to rule with absolute power. Something was being taken, one or more of those things was being taken away from them by the apostles. And they were jealous for it. But whichever of these it was, their jealousy was sinful, it was inappropriate, because none of those things belonged to them. They all belonged to God, and it was God who was asking them to give them up to him. When God asks of us what rightfully belongs to him, we give it gladly, whatever it is, and however much we love it, because it's his by right. But instead, these leaders dug in their heels, and they went to war. So in chapter 5, we find another battle, just like in chapter 4. It's another battle that the priests lost, and the apostles won. They won it because in verse 42, they did not cease from teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So it's a battle that has a clear winner and a clear loser. But it's a battle that's different from others that we've seen in the movies or read about in the news. Because here, the winners of the battle are the only ones who are actually harmed. God allowed blows to fall on the innocent, and yet they were still victorious. And along the way, there's even a sense of playfulness in the victory. So last Sunday, I was playing a board game with my children, and it was a board game based on Steven Spielberg's movie, Jurassic Park. Uh, and in this game, you start off lost deep in the park, surrounded by plastic dinosaurs. And you're far away from the safety of the visitor center, and you have to make a dangerous voyage across the park to the visitor center, and the first player to get there is the winner. Uh, but one of the quirks of this game is that it includes cards that let you cancel another player's move. So whenever you have these cards in your hand, you can play them at any time to cancel a turn that another player made. And then you get to pick up another card right away. And then when we were playing last weekend, 
Miriam had a hand that was just chock full of cancel cards. So um, whatever I did, she would just cancel it. I think she cancelled five or six of my turns in a row. So I, I would play move along the road three spaces. Cancel! Move out of the way of the Velociraptor. Cancel! Escape from the jaws of the T-Rex. Cancel! And you can imagine, I just didn't make very much progress. Miriam ended up winning the game while I was still miles away from home, lost in the woods and under attack from a Dilophosaurus. Well, it seems to me from reading Acts 5 that God's hand is also full of cancel cards. Because whatever the priest tried to do, God just cancels it. So the, the priests moved to arrest the apostles and put them in prison. Cancel! They're free again! The priests moved the, uh, removed the apostles from the temple and, and uh, God says, Cancel! They're right back there preaching. And the priests threatened them to stop preaching. Cancel! No, they're going to keep doing that. The rulers cursed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. Cancel. He's a blessing. He's going to be exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus is going to die. Cancel. He's alive again. <laughs> well, at least we're going to make the apostles miserable by beating them. Cancel. They're going to be full of joy. So in this battle, God overturns everything they do until they're aggravated to the point of fury. And I can totally feel that. Um, but God and God's people in this story aren't angry, right? God and God's people are having a good time. So that whole scene in verse 21 through 26, where they summon together the whole Senate of Israel, the whole government, to try the apostles. Imagine the scene. Everybody gets up in the morning and has a bath and combs his hair and puts on his best robe and parades down the street to court. And they all assemble in their pomp and finery and aren't we so important? And isn't this a somber and sober and serious day? Go and get the prisoners from the jail. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? They're all there. And the servant goes to get the prisoners and he finds it empty. The guards are still there and the door's still locked, but there's no one inside. And the council just stands there scratching their heads. Everybody important in the city is there. What do we do? And, uh, and, and they just wonder until somebody else comes in and says, the, the apostles you arrested are back in the temple preaching. They're doing the thing they were arrested for. And so the Senate, with all its pomp and self-importance, just starts to look pretty foolish. They're just not as much in control of the situation as they thought they were. They look like children playing with sticks. And their finely honed tools of prison and punishment and threats have been rendered utterly worthless against this otherworldly and altogether superior power. There's a playfulness in the way that God defeats them. He turns their serious trial into a comedy. And he lets them take their best shot because he's just so utterly unfazed by it. He allows them to make their move because in so doing, their masks of respectability slip off. And they show him their true faces. They show him their evil hatred and anger toward his son. It bubbles out of them. So God waits for them to act and condemn themselves before he plays his cancel card and overturns their move. And perhaps we see here part of the reason God plays this way. Why he fights his battles like this. Not always by protecting his people, but by gloriously restoring what was taken. He lets his enemies ascend until it looks like they have certain victory. And then he plays a card that changes the whole game. 
He seems happy to lose ground little by little for a decade and then win everything back in a day. He seems to love great reversals, to turn the tables, that the one who built the gallows should hang on it, the one who dug the pit should fall into it, the one who drew the sword should die by it, and the one against whom all those weapons were drawn should live. And so I think that's a good way for us to pray for those kind of reversals, for God to turn the tables. If something is unjustly taken from you, don't cry and wail. Ask for it back. Ask for it back double. If someone stands against you as an enemy, ask God to turn them into an ally, to make them his best new warrior, to make another Paul out of them. If an oppressive system holds you down, ask God to lift you up. If the courts deny you justice, ask God for a great reversal. Ask for the justice of your cause to shine like the noonday sun. He has immeasurable power to turn your situation around. And he loves to do it. He loves to turn death into resurrection. And to shine light where there's only darkness. And to make a way where there is no way. That's his favorite thing to do. So don't look at your circumstances and say, this and this and this isn't going well. Maybe I'll lose. Maybe God's not good. Maybe he's not fighting for me. Where is your faith? He sees you. He is good. He fights for you. And he can turn it around. If you're in prison, he can free you. If you're sick, he can heal you. If you're afraid, he can strengthen you. If you're dead, he can raise you. Ask him. Don't be dismayed at the way he's playing his cards. He has a strategy and a plan. And however bleak the situation looks, he can turn it around. He's already promised us the victory. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So hang on and wait for it. And try to enjoy the ride. As the problems grow darker and more desperate, it only makes the victory brighter. It never throws it into any doubt. And here in this story, it looks like the anger and hatred of the Sadducees toward the apostles is going to bubble over into outright war. But then the story takes a surprising turn. God called a ceasefire through the wise words of a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel wasn't a follower of Jesus, at least not at this point in his life, but he was clearly a wise and God-fearing man. History remembers Gamaliel as a luminary, a giant a kind of Yoda figure. Um, he was the greatest student of the Rabbi Hillel, who was renowned for his wisdom and his gentleness. And then we learn later in Acts that Gamaliel was the master who taught and trained Paul. So by the time of this conversation in Acts 5, Gamaliel was advanced in years and famous throughout the whole country and probably beyond. So Luke's comment in verse 34 that he was held in honor by all the people is almost certainly an understatement. He was an absolute hero. Um, Gamaliel had long experiences with Messiah figures, and he counted them in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So in what he said, Gamaliel wisely corrected the council in three ways. First, he put God back at the center of the conversation yeah. as the main thing they should be considering. In case they'd forgotten in all their zeal, we're all supposed to be servants of God together. 
The second thing is he reminded them that God is able to defend himself. He didn't need their counsels or soldiers or prisons or arguments or threats to defend him. Without their help, God is able to thwart a plan that comes from man. And third, that God's ways are mysterious. So even this wise Pharisee and even the whole council assembled together shouldn't presume to know what God is up to. Was it not possible that in their zeal they might even be found opposing God? And wouldn't they all agree that that would be a disaster? So he's very wise, and his words are gentle and sensible and humble and true. He shows in his words a good kind of jealousy, a jealousy not for his own name and power, but for God's name. And so Gamaliel succeeds in cooling their jets. As it says in Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away anger. And so it seems that Gamaliel's words had both an immediate effect and a lasting effect. So as we read on in Acts, the apostles seem to enjoy a period of peace from uh, persecution from the Sadducees. And we can only hope that Gamaliel's wisdom that he displays here eventually allowed him to see the truth about Jesus through his own test. Because the teaching of the apostles clearly didn't fail. We're still reading this story today and following the teachings of Peter and John and the others. And therefore, it was not of man. Because if the message was of man, it would have failed centuries ago. So we conclude by Gamaliel's test that it did indeed come from God. So if you're here this morning as a visitor and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian then thanks for being here today on our last Sunday in this place. But I encourage you to take Gamaliel seriously and to consider his words from our perspective in history. If there is a God with any kind of goodness and power worth worshipping, can you imagine that he ever would have allowed a false religion, a lie, a fake and foolish means of approaching him to grow to become the largest religion in the history of the world? Approximately one-third of the people on this planet today claim to follow Jesus. If Gamaliel could stand here today where you stand, what would he conclude about whether this teaching is from God? And if you've come to the right conclusion that it is, then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to try to stand up against him? like the Jewish ruling council, against this God who opens jail cells and heals sick people and raises the dead and take your chances that you might be the first person in history to stand against him and live? Or will you cower in indecision like those Jews in the temple, respectful of the worshipping Christians but afraid to join them? Or will you come in and be baptized like many of them did? The way is still open to you and you're invited. Whether or not it seems like a very attractive proposition for you, perhaps you can see that it's right, that this is of God, that it's the only sensible route to take, even if it's weird sometimes and operates under a strange set of rules. One of the oddest of those rules is the one we see at the end of our passage in verse 41. It says, The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And I'll close with this. So I said before that in this battle, the winners were the only ones physically harmed. They suffered undeservingly, and taking a beating from the Senate was no joke. But as they left, they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And this word joy is very important in all of Luke's writings. It's such an important key idea for him. So as we were preaching through Luke's gospel, we said that, that joy was a key theme for Luke. That it start, he starts his gospel with joy, he ends his gospel with joy, and key moments are marked with this word joy. And we've said that in Luke's writings, joy is what happens when people find themselves close to the saving mission of God. Remember that? That's the key theme for Luke. Joy is what happens when people find themselves close to the saving mission of God. And here at the end of Acts, uh, end of Acts 5, it's the first time in the book of Acts that Luke pulls out this word joy. Okay? It's the first time the apostles are said to rejoice. Not when the Holy Spirit came to them. Not when they miraculously spoke in other languages. Not when 3,000 people were baptized. Not when they healed the lame man. And not even when they experienced the early Christian community. Although there they were said to have glad and sincere hearts. But here, at the end of Acts 5, is the first time Luke reports them rejoicing. Even after a beating, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And so we learn that suffering for the name of Jesus isn't a necessary evil. It's the best part. It's the best part, right? I mean, that's something I find as hard to believe as you do, but it's what the Bible says. Suffering for the name of Jesus is pure and undiluted joy. It's better even than being used by God to speak a word of life or to heal. Because it brings us very close to the Lord we love. It brings us very near to his cross. In the eyes of the world, the cross is a place of horror and shame. But to Christians, that's the place of highest honor. Can you believe that I was invited near the cross? That's like being invited to have a conversation with the president in the Oval Office. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer. But it's not just any kind of suffering, is it? It's a specific kind. To suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That's what brought the apostles joy. They knew firsthand what their Lord had to suffer. And then they saw him raised. They saw his resurrection life afterward. They knew what that was like. And they recognized in their own suffering for his name that they were following him on that same path. And that's the reason for their joy. It's not a path that leads to defeat. It's a path that leads to victory. This will not be the end of me. It will be my salvation. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid of this path. We are afraid of it. Maybe it's the scariest kind of suffering to choose dishonor for the name of Jesus. We choose against it time and time again. We hide from it and we avoid it. But it's our joy. Disobedience is what's miserable. Obedience is joy. That's what the apostles show us in Acts 5. So that thing that you're hearing from the Lord, that thing he's been telling you to do, do it. And yes, there might be hardship that comes from it, but don't let your hardships crowd out your joy. Today we walk out of this place and we begin a new chapter of our community life together. And we know that our three-year season here has been laden with happiness and tears. So I think it's right that we take this moment to thank God, to thank him for both, for the struggles that brought us near the cross and the victories that brought us close to the resurrection. And let's go forward together into the next chapter in the knowledge that we already have the victory. 
We serve the God who holds all the council cards and whose strategy cannot fail. We will be saved and our lives will bear fruit. The fiercest attacks of our enemies can only add to our joy. And in the name of Jesus, none of our hard labor is ever in vain.